You can feel it in the streets. It crackles in the air. The vibe of excitement and achievement. When you see our name up in lights and you wonder, is this Damak Bay? The name that shines bright through the night and is your beacon in the day's light. In case you missed it, the name plugged there was Damak Bay. It's one of the glitzy new projects from Damak Properties, which is one of Dubai's biggest developers. The firm has a penchant for luxury. The neighborhood's crowning glory. Ready as you step into the rest of your life. The best of your life. Damak has been around for 20 years and it's amassed a market cap of over $2 billion. After developing across the Middle East, the firm has decided in recent years to shift its sights to the West. Two years ago, it topped out a 50-story project in London's South Bank with rooms decorated by Versace. And during construction, Demac's founder, Hussein Sajwani, said a next step would be breaking ground in the U.S. He floated New York or possibly L.A. This year, he made good on his promise. The surprise was the market he chose. Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal, your source for all things real estate. I'm your host, Isabella Farr, and today, our reporter, Lydia Dinkova, lifts the curtain on Demac. She'll chat with reporter Susanna Cavanaugh about the ins and outs of building on the Surfside condo collapse site, who is for development, who is against it, and the lowdown on the stalking horse bidder hoping to snap up this site. So Lydia, in our first Surfside episode, we focused on the lead up and immediate market impact of the tragedy. What we have yet to look at is the aftermath for the survivors and their families and also the site that was once their home. You've been reporting on this since it happened. So could you briefly bring us up to speed on the lived impact of the Surfside collapse? So shortly after midnight on June 24th, the 12-story Champlain Tower South inexplicably toppled. 98 people died. It's been over five months and families of those who passed are grieving and trying to find ways to push forward. There were survivors as part of the building. Still, they lost their homes, they lost all of their belongings, and they lost longtime friends and neighbors. This land is now to be sold and built upon, and the MAC is the first one to bid. Okay, so the word I keep hearing being thrown around regarding DMAC's solicitation of the site is stalking horse bidder. Can you tell me what that means exactly? Yeah, so essentially it's not certain that DMAC would develop this land. A stalking horse bidder means that it is first to throw in its hat in the ring to purchase the site. Its $120 million offer sets the minimum sale price on the land, which is nearly two acres of oceanfront property. So just to explain this, in the aftermath of the collapse, naturally there were lawsuits. And the judge presiding over the litigation, Judge Michael Hansman, has said that this land has to be sold. There's just no way around it. Uh, okay, so it's not like DeMac is just in. There is this possibility that it could face competition. Absolutely. The land is being sold as a way to generate funds to compensate victims. The reality is that the amount of insurance on the building and liability insurance is just not enough. Judge Hansman has made this clear, but no amount of money can ever make up for what happened. 
Still, the point of the land sale is to maximize the amount of disbursements. So to answer your question, yes, others can and more than likely will bid on this property, but their offer has to be more than the max. The developer who wins the bid will be decided at an auction early next year, and the MAC, of course, has the ability to up its ante if it wants to. Mm, okay. Still, so far, the MAC is the one name we know for sure is serious about buying the site. And Sejuani, although a mystery to most Americans, has a long and checkered history in the Middle East. Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit. Who is Sejuani? So those who are even just vaguely familiar with Sejuani, as soon as they hear his name, they're likely to respond with, yeah, that's the Donald Trump of Dubai. Now, Sejuani, who's a billionaire, loves the Trump brand and has said he wants to do more business with Trump. Here's Sejuani speaking to NBC News in 2017 after Trump was elected. My wife and Ivanka are very good friends. They exchange emails. She's been here to my house. We've been in New York having lunch and dinners with them regularly. Demac famously built the first Trump-branded golf course in the Middle East, and Eric and Don Trump Jr. were guests of honor at the 2017 opening. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, that seems like it kind of aligns with Trump taking that trip to the Middle East to try and patch up his relationships because he'd said such damning things about Muslims and Islam. But it seems like for Sejuani, you know, that, that was not a deterrent. Right. Sejuani's nickname is also a nod to his style. He has a penchant for the flashy and for the ultra-luxury. A villa at his Damak Hill starts at over 2 million dirhams, which is just over $630,000. His marketing is aggressive. In the past, he has given away Lamborghinis or Bugattis or BMWs to buyers. But here's the thing about Sajwani. He always seems to be going against the tide. And I mean, not just when he's stuck by his friendship with Trump. I mean, from the start and in terms of his real estate plays and in his real estate investments. In one example, in the early 2000s, he sold off his properties in one booming Dubai district and instead bought in Dubai's marina neighborhood, which was a relatively barren area at the time. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that sounds risky to me. Did it pay off? Indeed. He has two super tall condo skyscrapers there. One is 85 stories and the other is 83. So, yeah, it paid off. Well, so, it. I mean, it's clear that he is not afraid to do the unpopular thing. And this pattern, this approach is evident now as he's the first one to openly bid on the Surfside Collapse site. I mean, no other developer has dared touch this property, at least so far. Surfside and the Miami community at large are still very raw from what happened. This has been the most horrific thing to happen here in at least recent memory. Almost everyone you speak to has had some sort of connection with Champlain. Either they lived there years and years ago, or they personally knew someone who passed, or they know a family member of somebody who passed. And this includes the developers. In the end of the day, big name developers, the Deezers, the DeFortunas, the Mellows, they're all part of this community and many just don't want to touch this site, even if it's prime waterfront land of which there's very little left in Miami. Mm. So it sounds like within the community, it's a very small, tight-knit world. And as far as tobaccos, Apart from being a contrarian, I was wondering why he wants to stick his nose in this area and, you know, bid for the Surfside site. So the Mac says it wants to build a high-end residential project. 
A DeMac company spokesperson called Miami, quote, a natural fit given its reputation for being a popular, luxurious destination. Under the current town zoning, DeMac's new building would be limited to the dimensions of Champlain Tower South, which was 139 and a half feet tall. So it's basically DeMac loves luxury projects. This is an opportunity for a luxury project. So I wanted to ask you now about the people affected by the Champlain Tower collapse. So the survivors, those who were pulled from the site, and the families of those who died that night. What do they have to say about Damax sniffing around the Surfside site? So emotions and sentiments are still very raw in Surfside. No one has raised an issue with Damax specifically. The contention is not over who will develop the land, but whether the land should be built upon at all. And let me just say, everyone impacted by the collapse feels very differently. But if you were to ask me to generalize, they tend to fall into two groups. At this point right now, I just want to get the land sold. I think everybody wants to get the land sold, get their money, and move on with their lives. Because everybody now is just renting, or maybe they're still in a hotel, or they're living with their parents, or they're up in New Jersey, or wherever they are, and they just want to move on with their life. And I don't think anybody can until this is all settled out. That was Steve Rosenthal. On the night of the collapse, he was rescued from his home of 20 years, Unit 705 at Champlain Towers South. His home was in the portion of the building that stayed intact, and he and a couple of his neighbors were rescued with a cherry picker. And by everyone, he's referring to the roughly 35 survivors rescued from the site like himself. The other group Lydia's referring to are the family members of those who died that night. I understand that some unit owners, they lost their unit but I lost my daughter, and this is something that will never, ever, I'm gonna get back. And there's no amount of money in the world that will replace that, nothing. That was Pablo Langesfeld. His daughter, Nicole Langesfeld, and her husband, Luisa Dominic, died in a collapse. They were young, they were recently married, and they had their whole lives ahead of them. Nicole's family waited over 15 days as rescue crews searched through the rubble to hear of news about Nicole. They hoped for a miracle, but it didn't come. Now, the Langesfelds are not against the sale of the land, but the prospect of a new condo there is unthinkable. This is Martin, Nicole Langesfeld's brother. The only thing that should and could go on there is a memorial to honor the 98 who died. So is a memorial in the cards for that site? Not really. Constructing a memorial would require the government to step in. There has been no indication this would happen, leaving the Langesfelds feeling like public officials have turned their backs on them. Now, Rosenthal, too, would like to see the land preserved, but just not at the expense of survivors like himself. His plan before the collapse was to sell his unit and retire comfortably in a place like Boca Raton. Now he's upside down maybe $400,000 and he was thrust into becoming a renter. And just to put this into some context, the Miami rental market right now is gangbusters. Monthly rents are increasing in a matter of weeks. He found a condo to rent in Brickell, but says that he pays just about the same as he paid on his Champlain mortgage for half the space. So ultimately the sale and disbursements of the funds cannot happen fast enough for him. And then what about the loved ones of the people who died? 
I can imagine with only five months since the collapse, it would be really painful to see people discussing ways to profit from what had happened. Right, so for the Langesfelds, this process is happening too fast. Pablo Langesfeld described it to me and the speed of this as like having an open wound and someone just putting salt on it daily. The court process to sell the land started before all the victims were accounted for and to them that is just inhumane. He wishes he had the problem of just losing his home and finding a rental. Right. I know you said there's also been issues with how the money that comes in from the site should be divvied up between survivors and the families of loved ones. So can you tell me more about that? On one side are survivors who say that they should receive the entirety of the sale proceeds as well as the $30 million in building insurance given that they were the landowners. They say that those who lost loved ones would get the $18 million in liability insurance and anything else that comes in from the lawsuit. Okay, so that basically says that the families would get less money. Now, on the other hand, those who lost loved ones say that not only is this not the case, that unit owners should not be entitled to any funds, but that also there's a Florida law that says that unit owners actually could be liable for what happened and be sued for payment. They would be sued for up to the value of their units. Okay, I mean, that's huge. So then not only would those who lost their apartments but kept their lives not get anything, but they would also potentially have to face a lawsuit. That's That would be terrible. Martin Langesfeld says people like Rosenthal should not receive a single penny and Rosenthal called the state law, quote, a Pandora's box. Just the thought of not getting anything, but also potentially being sued, adds on to the stress he's living. Okay, so, I mean, clearly there's a lot of divisiveness. Bringing it back to DeMac, what did Rosenthal or the Langfelds have to say about the developer coming in? So the same line that divided survivors from families on the speed of development comes into play with DeMac. Here's Rosenthal and Sajwani. I mean, he's got an international reputation. He's built properties, I think, in London, all around the world. He seems like he knows what he's doing. At this point right now, I just want to get the land sold. And as for Martin Langesfeld? Seeing it from a safety perspective, how is it possible that another developer could come in, put a building up, have hundreds of lives there on a piece of land where we don't know why it fell? He and his father called on the winning developer to reach out to them. At this point, they're willing to compromise, perhaps design a project that allows for a memorial on the land as well. I asked Rosenthal if he would consider living in a condo on the site built by Damac. If I could afford it, I, don't, I can't afford it. There's no way you can get a place what I had on the ocean, a two-bedroom, two-bath, two balconies, 1,600 square feet, 1,560, but... Uh, for, I don't know, $2 million, brand new, probably more than that. So I, I don't have that kind of money. And then what about Demac? What does it have to say for itself? So the company declined to be interviewed for this podcast, but in a previous statement it said that if it succeeds as the bidder, it will work to contribute to the community. The spokesperson added that Demac, quote, fully understands the emotions surrounding the site and wishes to approach the development with full consideration of the community's benefit. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. 
or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea you'd like to share, feel free to reach me or my colleague Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're looking into the Zillow fiasco and the future of iBuying. Tune in then.